the tabernacle, a dwelling place for God, where God wants to dwell with us. That's what we're talking about. This morning we're going to talk about, and boy, I appreciate Mark so much how you've really teed it up this morning with the, the, the praise and worship and the songs that you chose, uh, anointed worship this morning for sure, to put us into that of mind and to put our hearts into a, a place where we can receive what God wants to show us in terms of the altar of sacrifice meant then and how that applies today. Because make no mistake, church, there is a connection, an unmistakable connection between what we're going to see and how they conducted the rituals of sacrifice in the tabernacle in the Old Testament to what we have experienced today in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. The brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, it's sometimes known as, it's described that way. It's that place where the drama of salvation really unfolds. It's where we and to be salvation in, in, the, in the covenant, as it says in the book of Hebrews, where we see that in the, in the Old Testament way that it was handled. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, in whatever form or fashion you have them, you want to turn to the 27th chapter of Exodus. We're going to look at those first eight verses this morning. Do you know that 433 times in the Bible, the word altar is mentioned. It's first mentioned in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 8, verse 4. It's mentioned, and you probably already know this because you're a very biblically literate congregation, am I right? I could ask any one of you where the mention of the first altar is, right, Carissa? <laughs> chapter 8, verse 20, story of Noah. Or Noah built an altar after the flood. But however, I think that we probably can surmise that the first altar probably was built and utilized even before we see in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, when we look at the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell into sin, as we all know, and it was later that animal skins were provided for them to cover them because of their embarrassment and because of their shame. It's quite possible, although we don't have a record of it per se, but it's quite possible that they began the ritual on the altar of sacrifice to somehow atone for their sin that they had committed and the breaking of that fellowship and relationship that they had with Almighty God. We don't have a record of that, but we might be able to draw that conclusion. Why? Well, we see later that their son Abel did in fact bring a blood offering so perhaps that's when the idea of the altar of sacrifice really took root, way back with Adam and Eve. There are many more altars of offering throughout the rest of the Bible. Abraham built one in response to God. He built one everywhere he went. Abraham was a nomad. Abraham was, was a tribal person, and wherever he went, he built an altar of sacrifice. But what was the purpose of the altar, and why does God instruct Israel to build one in conjunction with the tabernacle, if they're going to meet with him and worship him properly. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me show you a description. We've talked about this the last two Sundays already, but let me just show you, uh, and you have a little bit one there in the title slide of what the tabernacle looks like, and you can see uh, there 
is the altar of sacrifice. In fact, you even see animals and those that are, about, that are being sacrificed right there. That is <coughs> the, um, the outer court. And then inside here, of course, the holy place uh, and the holy of holies. Here's what uh, the diagram would look like if you were to walk into the tabernacle. Of course, there's only one entrance into the tabernacle. That's on the east side right here. There's the north side. And the first thing you see as you come in is that altar of sacrifice or the brazen altar. This, of course, is the outer court. Then you have the bronze basin or the, uh, the, the brazen labor, which uh, uh, Pastor Neil is going to talk about next week. And then you go into the holy place. It's in the holy place that you have the table of showbread and the golden lampstand, the menorah, and then the altar of incense, and then the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies where there's the Ark of the Covenant and on top of that, the mercy seat. And so as you can see from this tabernacle diagram, you enter from the east side. There is only, and this is important, and hold on to this, we'll come back to it, there's only one way to enter into the tabernacle, only one way. That is from the gate on the east side. Now, here's a better picture of the altar. I don't think this is one of Moses' pictures. I was kidding you last week. He was really not taking pictures way back when. But this is a good facsimile of what the brazen altar or the altar of sacrifice looked like. We can read in that passage of Scripture, and let's turn to that right now, and let's read about how God instructs Moses to build that altar of sacrifice. Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So as you read this, look at this picture. You'll see what what, what the vivid description is from the Scripture itself. Verse 3, And you shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings as it is at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles for the acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And so as we can see from this picture, it is, in fact, a square structure. It's made of acacia wood, which is known for its hardness and its durability. It's harder than oak, which is, we, as we all know, is a very hard wood. The boards are overlaid with brass. It's seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet tall. See the horns on each corner, which is where the animals were tied to. Inside of that structure, about halfway down, there is a mesh or grate of brass where the offerings are or burnt. In some ways, it kind of resembles your grill in your deck or your backyard. In this passage, we also see 
that there are utensils that are described. You can see some of those in this picture. They're used to get rid of the ashes. They're used to carry the blood from the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar, to the Holy of Holies. We can see the poles that are, that, that are, um, ex- that are extended through those rings. What are the poles for? Well, we already talked about last week that, that the children of Israel moved about 30 times in those 500 years. And so when they packed up and moved, they had to pack up and move everything in the tabernacle. They had to pack up and move this altar of sacrifice. So it had to be portable. They had to make it easy, fairly easy to move and to transport. And that's how they did it with those poles. They just picked it up and moved it. The fire pans were used to move those coals of fire from place to place when the entire tabernacle was transported because, and this is important, it was a perpetual fire. They could never let the fire go out, which is something that has meaning and significance to us today. All we have to do is go up the road about 25 miles to the tomb of the unknown soldier, and what do we have there? A perpetual fire. We have a perpetual fire at the tomb of John F. Kennedy. What's the purpose of a perpetual fire? A fire that never goes out. It's so that we will never forget the sacrifice that those people have made, the significance and the impact that they have made, the representation, that, the symbolic representation of that. That's what we have here as well. The fire was a perpetual fire, and so they carried those coals. That fire never went out. The fire pans were also used to move these coals and the fire inside that holy place to the altar of incense. Now, what does the word altar look like? It means a place of slaughter. In the Old Testament, this is what people had to do. In order to meet God, in order to have an, an expression and, 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 an, and an impression from God, it began at the altar of sacrifice. This is how they had to meet God. But that is not, as we've sung about today and as we well know, how we meet God today. We have a different kind of altar. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Excuse me, chapter 13, verses 10 through 12. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about non-believers. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. If you turn back just to chapter 9, what we have here is this understanding is that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, our sacrifice, and he did it once for all. Look at chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 23 through 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's the better sacrifice? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's talking about, the writer of Hebrews is talking about these rituals, these, this altar of sacrifice. He goes on to say in verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, not into the tabernacle, the holy place made with hands. 
which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. Verse 26, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, and this is key, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. Now, the person and work of Jesus Christ can be seen in this altar of sacrifice. Let me just give you quickly four points that help to illuminate that this morning. The acacia wood is, in fact, incorruptible. I said it was one of the hardest woods, if not the hardest wood that you could find, harder than oak. It was practically impossible for it to be corrupted. So is Jesus Christ, the incorruptible Jesus Christ, the one who walked this earth, the Son of Man who was incorruptible, the one who was tempted like we are and yet did not sin, incorruptible. We also see that the tree, this acacia tree where, uh, where this wood was created to create the altar of sacrifice was actually a, had thorns to it. And so from those thorns, we can see a parallel in that as Jesus was crucified, as he was tortured, there was pressed upon his head, what? A crown of thorns. Did it come from the acacia tree? Perhaps it did. When the tree is here, it comes from that tree over a period of time, this resin that oozes out of the tree. It was used in Old Testament times for personal purposes. What does this do? It reminds us that when Jesus himself was pierced, when he was nailed to the cross, when the spear was thrust into his side, and the scriptures tell us that blood and water flowed out, salvation, grace, and mercy, and to escape the wrath and judgment of God. That's the healing of our souls. And here's the fourth thing. The brass overlay of that altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar, shows that it is a place, as we talked about last week in understanding the, 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 the symbolism of, of bronze and brass, it is a place where sin is judged at the altar of sacrifice. Speaking of judgment, let me just pause here and throw something out at you this morning. I want to call it God's dilemma. Because, in fact, God had a dilemma. God's dilemma was this. He was a God who was holy. And because he was holy, he could have nothing to do with sin. He could have no connection to sin. He could not be exposed to sin. Uh, he and just holy God. He wanted to have a relationship and be in fellowship, as we see in the story of Adam and Eve, with us. But sin came in and broke that relationship. It marred that fellowship that we have with him. God's dilemma. What's he going to do? How's he going to judge sin? 
How's he going to affect a, 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 some kind of reconciliation between sinful man, between, between us and him? Well, God had And thank God he had a plan. But this is the thing you need to understand. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be included in that sacrifice death and blood. That way a holy God is satisfied and a sinful man is justified. Now later in some messages, I'm going to talk more about why that was necessary. Why death? Why blood? Why this way? A that sometimes, as some critics will say, paints a picture of a bloodthirsty God. And we're going to talk more about that. Why the blood? Why the sacrifice? Why the death? And unpack that a little bit more. But I wanted you to know this morning that that had to be done. Had to be satisfied. His wrath, His judgment, His holiness had to be satisfied through death and through blood. Now let's talk about this drama of salvation. Because this drama of salvation see at the altar sacrifice in the tabernacle is something that connects us to holy God and allows us to understand our own salvation. This drama of salvation that unfolds in the Old Testament, it involves three things, just as it involves three things. First of all, it involves a convicted sinner. Secondly, it involves a consecrated substitute, and finally, a completed sacrifice. So we're going to unpack that for a few minutes. But let me just say this. Whether it's the altar of sacrifice at the tabernacle thousands of years ago, or it's this altar right here in this place, in this sanctuary, this tabernacle, if you will, nothing happens. God doesn't make any connection. God can't make any transformation. God can't do anything unless there's conviction of the sinner. Unless someone is convicted by their sin, someone is convicted, as Mark said you know, very, very clearly in a, in a very confessional way, convicted of even how they approach God as a believer. Casually. As we take it for granted. As we don't allow the Spirit of God, which we know from the New Testament, it's primary, or perhaps it's, it's, it's certainly one of, the, one of the, 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 the purposes of the Holy Spirit, as it says in the New Testament, is to convict us of sin and judgment. And so if you're a believer this morning, then there's one thing that be occurring in your life, especially when you come into his tabernacle, his sanctuary, in front of his altar, and that is God, in his spirit, is always seeking to convict you of sin in your life so that you can have an encounter with God, so you can have an experience with God. And so this drama of salvation, I'm not just talking about somebody who has to go through this in order to meet Christ for the first time, but even those who know Christ, like many of us do, have to have an experience with Him where we grow in our salvation, Michael. When we grow in our salvation. And it can only begin when we're convicted 
not made to feel guilty. There's a difference. But when we're convicted of our sin. And so it begins with this understanding of a convicted sinner. Turn with me to the 51st Psalm, verses 1 through 4, the first part of verse 4. Obviously, this comes from King David's writing. If anybody who knew something about sin and being convicted of sin, I think it was David, right? He wrote a lot about sin. He wrote a lot about being convicted of sin. And listen to what he writes here about himself, probably, but something that applies to all of us. He says in, in, in Psalms 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is exactly what Mark was talking about. It's this understanding, it's this, 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 this sense that, that we, when we encounter God, we have this kind of an attitude. He goes on to say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is, not what is wrong, but what is evil in your sight. Church, please understand. When God looks at our sin and He looks at those things that we gloss over, that we minimize and that we mitigate and we rationalize, He looks at it as evil. He looks at it as something that separates us from Him. He looks at us as individuals and He looks at us from His blessings, what He wants to do in our lives, collectively in our lives individually. And we have a tendency... To approach him so casually. We have a tendency to so mitigate and rationalize the sin in our lives when in fact as, as David in his eyes. So I want you to imagine with me this morning, I want you to go to those Israelites in that encampment around the tabernacle, that one or two million person who is standing outside that white linen fence of the tabernacle that we can see in that corner picture right there. The white linen fence. Here this person realizes that because of because for him it represents he can't go inside. If he was to climb over that fence or dig underneath that fence he would be killed. If he was to cut a hole through another part of the fence, he would be killed. There is only one way. He knows that that fence stands for purity. He knows who he is because he has stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and he's heard God's thunderous message and he's seen the, the Ten Commandments come down. And he doesn't mitigate and he doesn't rationalize and he doesn't approach casually this understanding that he is in fact a sinner. And he knows there's only one way into the tabernacle. There's only one gate through that east side. Just and we do know that there's only one way to the Father. For Jesus said, Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. 
the way and the truth and the life. And no one but through me. There's only one way in, church. There's only one way into the tabernacle. There's only one way into meeting God and having fellowship and having a relationship with Him. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus said, I am the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the gateway. There's only one way, church. Just as there was only one way in the Old Testament at the tabernacle. And so here's this. this from that picture there. There's other in that white linen fence. There's the white that stands for purity, of course, but there's which stands for its heavenly and the Lord of Lords, the one who showed himself, as we have seen over the past few weeks, who is mightier than the most most mightiest person. On he showed him who was boss, didn't he? He showed him who was Almighty God. Pharaoh thought he was God. History teaches us that Pharaoh thought he was God. Do is go find one of those traveling shows that, that have the, the, the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs, and you'll know that he's not God because you can look. He's red in that fence. Well, we all know what red stands for, don't we? It stands for blood, for sacrifice. And so he wants I be allowed in? Yes. He can come in that gate. He can be allowed in, but only if he has the proper sacrifice. And if he has the proper sacrifice, then no matter what, has done that has been evil in God's sight it doesn't matter because he has the proper sacrifice the drama of salvation unfolds at the altar of sacrifice that there has to be a consecrated substitute now turn with me to the book of Leviticus the book of Leviticus, which is after the book of Exodus, first chapter. And what we will see here in this passage of Scripture, as we see in the New Testament, is this fundamental principle about sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no sin. We, as a church and as believers all across this world, we testify to that fact every time we come to the table to take communion. And I don't care if you're Catholic or you're Protestant. That's what that means. We believe that. That without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission, no forgiveness, no mercy, no grace with regards to sin. So let's look at what it says in Leviticus chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1. We'll read just through the first five verses to begin with. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If this if his offering is burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance to the tent of the meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. You got the proper sacrifice, you're accepted by God. Verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the Lord and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is the entrance of the tent of the meeting place. Did you note that it says that the sinner had to grab the animal himself. He had to lay hands on that animal himself. And by laying hands on the animal himself, grabbing the animal himself, nobody else could perform. him. No servants there. There is no special people there. There is no deacons there. There is nobody except that person who is bringing that animal for that sacrifice. He had to bring it. He had to lay hands on it. And he had to kill it. Now, symbolically, what that meant is simply this. By laying hands on that animal that was innocent, what did that animal do to God? Not a thing, church. But by laying hands on that animal, he was symbolically transferring his evil that he'd done in God's sight, sin, to that animal. And then by killing it, offering up what... God's wrath, God's judgment, life and blood to satisfy God and to justify himself. Now, church, does that remind you of a sacrifice that might have occurred a little bit earlier? Does it perhaps remind you a little bit of Abraham and Isaac when God told Abraham to take his son him, which God provided another substitute? Was it Abraham that had to take his son and lay hands on him and God instructed him to kill him for himself? Yes. Reminds us of that, doesn't it? And so this animal had to be tied to the altar just as Isaac had to be. Just like Jesus. just like Jesus was tied to the cross. Except, church, it wasn't the nails and the cords that kept Jesus on the cross. It was, in fact, His love that kept Him on the cross for us. And so we see in this drama of salvation, convicted sinner, a consecrated substitute. Now let's look at that last slide of salvation that unfolds. As a, look at those verses in Leviticus chapter 1, 6 through 9. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire in the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire, on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering. And then look at that last phrase, that last part of that sentence of verse 9. 
with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not only, listen to me very carefully as we close, not only was the sacrifice something good for us, but it was also something that was good for God. He was pleased with the sacrifice. Church, when Jesus died on the cross, listen, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't the Roman soldiers. It wasn't Caiaphas and the religious that put him on the cross. Jesus on the cross. And it was Jesus' love for us that kept him on the cross. And it was also the power of God that removed him from the tomb. The truth is, Jesus didn't die at the hands of men. He died at the hands of God. Just as Isaiah prophesied in the 53rd chapter. Isaiah 53. Turn with me if you like to read that passage of Scripture. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Or as Paul put it in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation for, or propitiation by his blood. Or as John said in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. This is how John describes love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. It was God that put Him on the cross. It was God who left Him on the cross. It was Jesus who stayed on the cross. It was God who delivered Him from the tomb. He was a completed sacrifice. Now, here's the last thing I want to tell you. Here you have the articles that we talk about or we're going to be talking about in the tabernacle. We have the altar of sacrifice that you can see right here. We have the brazen labor that Pastor Deal is going to talk about next week. We have the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the menorah or the golden lampstand. In the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. I've been telling you that the drama of salvation unfolds at the altar within this tabernacle. I've been trying to tell you that everything in the tabernacle, including these articles, point to one simple fact. It's the everlasting and wonderful story of salvation. You see, church, when you draw a line between these articles, this is what you get.
Would you pray with me?